Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. Let me invite you to be seated this morning. You can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This morning we're going to conclude a four-week mini-series here at Coastal Oaks that I've been teaching through just called the Hometown Challenge where we have examined the disciples' call to clearly and passionately partner with God in the work that He is already doing right here where he has planted us, our hometown, if you want to think of it that way. And if you remember just briefly from weeks past, we've talked about all the important W's of missional living. Uh, we've talked about the what and the why and the who and the when and even the where. This morning we're going to shift gears as we wrap up and talk about the how, how we are to live as depicted for us by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 19 in a sermon that I've just titled, Grace is Greater. Grace is greater. As we get started this morning, I want to remind you of a couple of truths. The first one is this, that when Jesus told his disciples to make disciples, he gave them an attainable goal. And so for you and I, as disciples of Christ, to accept the challenges, to uh, endeavor to do something that Christ has not only empowered and enabled us to do, but when we partner with him, there will be success there. He, he gave them an attainable goal. It's not an un attainable goal, making disciples. The second truth is this, that uh, there's a right way to do it. And as we'll see this morning, uh, that Jesus clearly demonstrates to us that grace is the way of the disciple. We talked about W's a few minutes ago, who, what, when, where, why. Uh, you could throw another one in there. This is the way, the, the, the path, so to speak. The work of making disciples is to join Jesus Christ himself as administrators of grace Grace is the essence, it is the lifeblood of the hometown challenge. And so we're going to look at that this morning, starting in Luke chapter 19. Let's look at that, starting in verse 1. Probably a familiar story for some of us. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man is too a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and save or came to seek and save 
that which was lost. There's a lot going on in this story, and perhaps you're familiar with it uh, as uh, in the form of a children's song. Uh, we're not going to sing that together this morning unless you just really, really want to. Uh, I tell you what, we'll stay after and we'll practice the Coastal Oaks Choir that way, okay? If you really want to sing the kids' song. But, but in this picture, in this story, uh, I believe there is a, a very clear picture of how a disciple is supposed to handle himself when it comes to people who are obviously sinners, when it comes to people who are far from the grace of Christ, and it, and it involves grace. Before we go any further, just a brief historical background on the city of Jericho and the man Zacchaeus himself. Jericho was one of the most famous Bible cities. Way back in the Old Testament, Jericho was a city that pictured, or excuse me, that uh, was a picture of fortitude and strength throughout the entire known world. Uh, it had walls that surrounded the city that no one had been able to conquer. But Jericho set directly in the way of God's people conquering the promised land. And, and so I believe God picked Jericho to fall to the Israelites so that the rest of the world would look and say, Jericho fell, we're going to move out of the way of God's people. So Jericho, after it falls to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5, lays in ruins for 400 plus years. Uh, just to help you process this a little bit, the United States of America this year celebrated its 238th birthday. 238 years, and a lot's changed in America over that time, has it not? So for 400 years plus, the city of Jericho laid in ruins until it was rebuilt at a nearby location under King Ahab. So fast forward from that time to Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, Jericho was a Roman-occupied gateway city that was both a major exporter of goods and a major importer of goods because it was on a major trade route. And so the city, or excuse me, the Roman government made lots, and I mean lots, of import and export tax through the businesses of Jericho. It's a very valuable city. And here is Zacchaeus, labeled in verse 2 as the chief tax collector. He was very powerful and wealthy, but Scripture points out that he was short. As a chief tax collector, he would have been the lead dog, so to speak, in a pack of tax collectors responsible for collecting all of the tax on the import and exports out of, excuse me, through Jericho. And think about this with me. Zacchaeus was a hired gun, so to speak. He was, a, uh, he was a Jew by birth, but he worked for the Romans who occupied the city of Jericho. And so at any given moment, he could almost become expendable to the Romans. Think about it this way. If he were required to bring X number of dollars back to the Romans for tax based on their estimations of the import and export business that was going into and out of Jericho. What if he misses one day? What if he comes up short? Surely they could find someone else to fill his shoes, right? He would have walked that line between doing good or providing a service for the city of Rome at the same time becoming expendable and always being hated by his own people for his own practices. I'll challenge the notion that Zacchaeus was what we see of him in the children's song. I, I, I see more of like a Vegas pit boss in my own mind. A man that employed people who could get things done, if you, so, uh, if you want to think of it that way. 
A man who was responsible for much and took his job very seriously. He was good at it. Well, let's transition to some stuff we can make application with this morning. Despite all of this, it seems that Scripture indicates that he is searching. He is seeking. He's not satisfied with all of that. Even to the point where he was willing to risk public exposure out on the streets with the common people. Probably was not his regular everyday routine. And for the sake of our discussion today, I would say to you, I'm going to say the word grace a lot. And anytime you hear me say the word grace, you can substitute the name of Jesus because Jesus is grace. And so for us this morning, I want to show us, I want to highlight from this passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 19, four reasons why grace is greater. Number one, grace seeks relentlessly. Grace seeks relentlessly. Uh, Look at what happens in verse five, or excuse me, verse one and verse five. Jesus entered Jericho. In verse five, it says that Jesus is walking down a path, and when he reaches a spot, he stops and he engages in conversation with Zacchaeus. And in this, I believe that we see that Jesus pursues sinners so that he might befriend them, not condemn them. I want to say this again to you this morning. I believe that this shows us that Jesus pursues sinners so that he might befriend them, not condemn them. I read this week about, um, you got to know, I'm not really a child of the 70s. I was born in 1979, and so I got in on the back end of the 70s, and I know a lot of stuff happened there. I read a story this week uh, about a a new technology that that was debuted in the 70s, a military technology. Uh, It was called infrared homing technology. We call it heat-seeking in our day. And what it did was it enabled a launched projectile to lock onto the heat signature of another launched projectile, a missile, a plane, or something like that. If it was burning fuel, it could see it. And it would lock on and, and to the point where it would steer the missile or the launch projectile to the point of impact to where it would hit its target. As I was, see, as I was looking this week at the story and how Jesus interacted with Zacchaeus and how, um, how he engages him, to me it, it just shows us that, that grace uh, seeks relentlessly. It doesn't give up. It's not going to get tired tomorrow. In fact, many Bible scholars agree and believe and teach that Jesus intentionally took the disciples through Jericho so that he could encounter Zacchaeus. It wasn't just a happenstance occurrence. Just like the blessings of God aren't pure luck. They are uh, things that God intentionally allows to filter out of his hand and down to his people. It's not luck. It's a gift. And I believe that we see that grace seeks relentlessly. So what does this tell us? Well, I believe it tells us something very clear. Listen, church. No one is beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. No one is beyond the grace of Jesus Christ. There's not anyone that, that Jesus would say, they're too far gone or they're too blank to save. I, I don't know how you would fill in the blank, but, but I believe that this teaches us that, that, that we see that grace seeks relentlessly and it says to us that no one is beyond the grace of God. Is there someone to whom you've ministered in the past 
that you would hesitate to return to because they've not received the message of Christ? Is there someone that you would say they're too far gone? They're too lost. They're too depraved for Christ to save. I would say to you as a disciple of Christ, this is incredible, an incredible opportunity to be like Christ and to seek relentlessly. Each interaction, I believe, as a disciple of Christ is an opportunity to be an agent of grace. And I would say to you very clearly this morning, church, if you truly understand and know the depth and the breadth of the grace that Christ has poured out on us through His work on the cross, then you would know there is only one proper response, and that is this, to replicate it. To receive it and to replicate it. Not to receive it and hoard it, and keep it, but to replicate it, to seek even to do so. I want us to think for a minute. Think about your circle of friends, your circle of influence. And I don't mean to say anything negative about the fellowship of the church because the fellowship of the church is unique and it's blessed and God has ordained it so. But typically what happens is in most church situations is people get together and they get to know each other and their families hang out. And uh, then somebody goes through a crisis and you walk through the crisis together. And somebody goes through a sickness and you walk through the sickness together. And if everybody comes out on the other end, those, those things draw you to one another. They, they bind you even to one another. But what it does is it also causes you at some point, at some level, to kind of build up a wall And this wall surrounds you and your friends and your family, your circle of influence, and it permits other people from coming in. It permits other people from accessing the grace that you have as a follower of Christ. I would just ask you, consider this this morning. Have you created a blockade? Intentionally, unintentionally, doesn't really matter. Grace seeks relentlessly. Secondly, look at this with me. Grace calls your name. Seeks relentlessly. Secondly, grace calls your name. Look at what happens in verse 5. Jesus is walking down the street, uh, likely with the disciples in tow, even though they're not mentioned here, but they're traveling together. And so he's walking down the street, and, and he gets to the spot where Zacchaeus is in the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. I I wonder, I I just wonder, as I read stories like that, I wonder how shocked Zacchaeus was. I, I really do. I wonder how shocked he was that he had elevated himself in a tree to a position where he could see Jesus. Surely he didn't expect for Jesus to stop and acknowledge him. He just wanted to see the man pass by and the man passes by and stops and not only stops and looks up in the tree, but he calls his name. It's an important distinction for us this morning as followers of Christ to see that Jesus called Zacchaeus' name. And in doing so, he demonstrates to us that grace calls your name. I would say to you this morning, church, this. True grace is shocking. When grace is poured out, it, it, it makes people feel weird because they want to repay. They want to do something in return. But at the same time, you know you can't do anything. 
That's okay. That's supposed to happen. When true grace is dispensed, it shocks people. Leaves us thinking, what could I possibly do to repay you? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. That's what grace is. I want us to take a minute and compare and contrast some spiritual tactics uh, as we think about our enemy, Satan, and we think about Jesus and how he depicted for us how disciples are to act. Um, I, just as you examine scripture, I think it's real easy to see these. I don't have a specific verse uh, lined up with them, but maybe you could take this on as a challenge or a project this afternoon to see where these things are true in scripture. I see this in Scripture that Satan accuses in generalities, but Jesus convicts specific sin. I see that Satan accuses from a distance, but Jesus uses relationships and embraces to bring correction. I see that Satan binds you with your past, but Jesus, he offers forgiveness. He offers freedom from sin and he offers a future that is unimaginable. Satan uses what I call the guillotine of guilt. He can make you feel bad enough about how bad you are. Then you'll do something. Not the right reason. But he uses the guillotine of guilt. To the other end, Jesus works the ground of grace. Satan points to what you have done. Jesus, he points to what he has done for you. Satan uses distancing language, words like them and those people. And, uh, but what does Jesus do? You've seen it right here. He, he calls your name. He calls your name. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, friends. Sometimes people do silly things. Have you noticed that? Uh, you, you might be able to think of one really quick, but sometimes people do silly things, right? Let, let me use a stronger word. Sometimes people intentionally do stupid things. Right? You've seen this? Well, I, I was kind of one of those and probably still am to an extent, a bit of a bonehead. Um, and that's okay. I'm, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I know who I am. Uh, but I, here's, a, here's a fact about me. Before I was in the eighth grade, I had 14 broken bones. 14 broken bones. I, I got threatened at multiple times in my life from my parents to buy me a wardrobe that was basically all bubble wrap. I mean, you know, that was kind of the way it worked in my house. It started with one incident, though. It started with one incident. Uh, I grew up in an era of A-Team and G.I. Joes. I don't know if you remember that show and that cartoon or that toy, but that's the era I grew up as a, as a young boy in the early 80s. A-Team was it. G.I. Joes were the thing to play with. And, and not the, the, the big Barbie doll looking ones either. I'm talking about the little short ones that you could put in your pocket and just jam them all over the place. Had hundreds if not thousands of those things. That was my go-to toy. And, and because of my uh, uh, just love for this stuff, I was always the good guy and there was always a bad guy, right? And so you have, uh, if you have this sense of justice that rises up in you from seeing the A-Team do what they did and G.I. Joe do what they did, you, you want to slay the bad guy, right? You want to right all the wrongs. And so as a young boy, I spent a lot of time pretending that's what I was doing. If I could make it into a gun, it was a gun. And I was going after the bad guys with it. And so one day I'm out in the backyard of my uh, first hometown, uh, a little place called Plano, Texas, uh, not so little anymore, but I was out playing before any of my sisters had been born after me, and 
uh, someone, I don't know who, but someone left uh, a manhole cover off of a manhole. And, and so uh, here I am playing in the backyard and I'm uh, getting all of the bad guys that have come through my backyard. I'm just buried on one after another. I mean, it's just a fun day playing and being a, being a boy. And, and at some point I see this manhole and I think, you know, that looks a lot like a tank. It really does. I mean, think of it. It's not a deep manhole. It's shallow. It's only about three, maybe four feet deep. And I'm looking at that going, man, that'd be a great hideout. And so at some point, I make my way around the yard and I jump in the manhole. And when I jump in the manhole, it has a a ring, a steel ring around the outside of it. I hit my arm on the side of it. Break my arm. First broken bone right there. Bad guys got me that day. That was the first of 14, all before I was in the eighth grade. You know, not at one point in my life did I ever hear anyone, especially those that were closest to me, even though they knew what I had done, they knew that I wasn't the the, the smoothest criminal out there. No one ever said, Andy, why are you so clumsy? No one ever called me careless or reckless or they just called me a boy. They, my, my mom and dad, they called me son. And when they needed me, they didn't refer to me by all the mistakes that I had made and all the, the money I had cost them in medical bills. You guys don't even know the broken bones were just the start of it. They didn't refer to any of that. They just called me by my name. It's important for us as we think back on the spiritual tactics that we discussed earlier. It's important for us to understand grace calls your name. Think back on that list that Satan accuses in generalities. He accuses from a distance. He binds you with your past. He uses guilt. He points to what you have done and how bad you are and how you could not ever measure up. Points to all of that. When we do that, when we adopt similar tactics in engaging the sinners of our world, and there are plenty, who do we look like? Who is it that we look like? Do, do we look like our, our master, our, our king, Jesus, or do we look like his enemy? I would say that's pretty easy to see. Conversely, when we uh, follow, if we mirror, so to speak, the tactics that Christ mirrored, where we talk about specific sin, we use relationships and, and, and embrace each other in correction. We work the ground of grace. We, we point people to forgiveness in Christ and freedom from sin and an unimaginable future. We point people to what Jesus has done, not to what they have done. Who then do we look like? I would say we look like Jesus then. And I would say that's a goal. That's a better goal. Grace calls your name. Thirdly, grace causes scandal. Grace causes scandal. If you look at verse 7, actually verse 6 and 7, it says, He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Verse 7 says, All the people, the people that were standing around, they saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus acknowledged Zacchaeus publicly and openly 
And in doing so, he did it all the while ignoring the grumbling of the crowd, the murmuring. The word that my Bible uses is the muttering. Can I, can I say this to you this morning, church? And I hope you can see it. If not, I'm going to try to illustrate it for you. Every time grace comes on the scene, someone's going to grumble. Every time grace is dispensed, someone's going to murmur. Someone's going to be dissatisfied. Someone is going to say things like, where's mine? Someone's going to say, they don't deserve that. Someone else might say, that's not fair. Every time grace is dispensed, someone's going to murmur. Someone's going to grumble. Someone's going to be unhappy or dissatisfied. Think about this with me. You take two children, set them at the dinner table. You give one a half gallon of whatever kind of ice cream they want. You give the other a plate of green beans. Both is food, right? But there's going to be, you, I mean, you know this, right? There's going to be some immediate grumbling like, what, from the, the, the poor child with the green bean plate. I mean, he's just going to be like, what? What did I do? Am I bad? Am I? How can I get what they got? Have teenagers? Buy one of them a Mustang for their first car. Buy the second one a Toyota. See what happens. I mean, nothing wrong with Toyotas. I mean, we know. But in the mind of a teenager, what does that look like? Clearly, one of those is better than the other, right? At the risk of offending some of us in the room, I'm going to use one more illustration. Take two 70-year-old people. One of them has, the, the, they wear the skin every day of someone who has lived 70 years on this earth. You take another 70-year-old and they have the skin, they have the body, the physique, whatever. You, you put it in, you, you fill in the blank. Of someone who's 35. Oh, they've had work done. Right? Oh, they must have their, their doctor on speed dial. They've been using Botox and all this other stuff, right? That's what happens. Because they couldn't possibly be the grace of God on that person's life where they look younger than they actually are. Couldn't possibly be. Did you know this this morning, church? You know why when people, do you know why people grumble when grace is dispensed? You know why they say it's not fair? Because it's not fair. I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but the definition of grace is this. You get what you don't deserve. You get what you don't deserve. And so the next time someone in your life says that's not fair and they want to highlight a, a gift of grace as being not fair, you can go ahead and confirm it for them, okay? You can tell them, you're right, it's not fair. Move on. Not everyone wins all the time. Where grace goes, scandal follows. I think, the, th think back with me. The, the story from the Gospels of the prodigal son. This young man asks his father for his inheritance before his father is dead. Basically, he says to his father, I wish you were dead. That's how you get your inheritance, right? And, and so the father, just loving and graciously... He, he gives the boy the inheritance and the boy takes the inheritance and he goes to a distant country and scripture records that he literally squanders it. 
It's gone in a matter of weeks or months. And he has nothing. And at some point in all of this, he realizes even the slaves in my father's house have better provisions than what I have access to. So I'm going to go home and I'm going to beg forgiveness of my father. Scripture records in this parable that, that, that the father has been watching for the boy to come home. And when he tops the hill, daddy takes off in a sprint. And he hugs his boy and he puts the family ring on his finger and he brings him home and he, he, he takes the choice animal from the herd and he slaughters it and he invites the friends and says, we're having barbecue tonight, boys. My, my, my youngest son has come home and he throws this party. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace. You know what? There's a second side to that story. There's an older brother. If you read down toward the end of the story, he doesn't get nearly as much airtime in the story, but, but he's there. And this older brother is out in the field doing what he's supposed to do when the party starts up at the house. And he asks one of the, the slaves that he's working with, he says, hey, what's going on up at the main house? And the slave says, you didn't hear? Your brother, the one who left and took his inheritance, he, he's come home. And your dad has just lavished everything on him. And he's killed the, the fatted calf and he's preparing a feast and he's invited all the friends and the neighbors. And you know what happens? Older brother makes a beeline for daddy and he says, what is all of this? I've been here the whole time doing exactly what I was supposed to do. You didn't do any of this for me. See, grace is poured out. Somebody's going to murmur. Somebody's going to mumble. Somebody's going to grumble. Even we see this in Matthew chapter 9 where Ma uh, excuse me, Jesus calls Matthew and says, I want you to be one of my disciples. And Matthew agrees and leaves behind his life of tax collecting, similar to what Zacchaeus was in this story. And he becomes a disciple of Christ and they go to Matthew's home and they throw a party and all the people in Matthew's home interact with Jesus and they have this incredible encounter. Pharisees, they're standing outside of Matthew's home and they ask the disciples, there may have been even been a few of them there at the party, affluent people as they were. They lean over and ask the disciples, doesn't your master know he's better than all of these people? Why does he hang out with obvious sinners? Causes a scandal. Grace takes risks. It trumps mob theology, conventional wisdom. I want to say this to you, church, this morning. If you dispense grace, and you should, if you would want people to know that you're a disciple of Christ, if you dispense grace, you might also become a target for the mob, or at the very least, be labeled weak. Yet I would say to us very clearly this morning, you cannot withhold grace and claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He, he clearly demonstrated its power, its place, and its impacts. You see, grace considers potential over past offenses, and so grace leads some to grumble. It considers reconciliation greater than your historical record. 
And when it happens, when it's dispensed, when it's given, when it's shown, when it sees the light of day, some will grumble because grace causes scandal. Uh, let me challenge this church this morning, challenge us in this way, to be quick to celebrate the transforming work of Christ, to be as quick to do that as we are to celebrate and proclaim His grace. To, be, to, 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 to watch, and when someone in our midst starts to get it, to point it out and say, I, I saw that. And I knew who I know who you were, and I see what Christ is doing in you. And in doing so, we cement that only Christ can get the glory for the work in a man's life. Let's be quick to celebrate. Let's be quick to acknowledge grace. And when the, those that will come and grumble, when they grumble, let them grumble. Sometimes the, the risk of scandal with grace even causes us to hesitate. Let me say to you, church, don't do it. Don't hesitate. A few months back, I think it's mostly not a thing anymore, but a few months back, many of you saw and even several participated in this ALS ice bucket challenge where you video yourself dumping a bucket of ice water on your head or somebody helping you and uh, just a, a lot of uh, money was raised for that. I, I see this as a really good picture for how grace is to be dispensed. I mean, could you imagine if grace were the ice in the ice bucket challenge? That, that we video ourselves and we challenge someone that we're connected with to dispense grace. And then we take it and we pour it out all over ourselves. Well, we don't have to do that because Christ already has. But what does it do? It generates more grace. Grace causes scandal. But you know what? Probably the most important thing, most important truth that we'll look at today. Grace softens the heart. Grace softens the heart. What else would cause such a ruthless man like Zacchaeus in one interaction with Jesus? Probably across several hours, but one interaction. What would cause him to promise restitution for those who he had, who he had wronged? What would, promise, uh, what would cause him to move beyond that even to generosity? One encounter with Jesus? I would say to you, yes, but it's bigger than that. It's one encounter with grace. Think back with me. This is, this is the same thing that happened in, in John chapter 4. Uh, we read a story of Jesus interacting with a, a Samaritan woman. And, and there's no reason why they should have been talking based on the customs of their day. And throughout this encounter, this woman sees the grace of Jesus and how he responds to her. And he, he knows her. He knows who she is. He knows that she's been married five times and that the, the man that she's with is not her husband. She, she's on relationship number six. And there's lots of failure and probably lots of other stuff that have happened in her life. And, and he knows this. He knows who she is, and, and he knows the customs of his day say that he should not be talking to her, but what does he do? 
He addresses her. He, he, he converses with her. And Scripture records that it is such a profound impact on her life that she goes home. Remember what we talked about last week? She goes home to the same family that had watched five failed marriages. And she tells them, you all need to come see Jesus. You need to come see Him because He told me everything I ever did. And He loved me in spite of it. In grace, I would say to us this morning that we are fully aware of two things. Who we are and what we've done. And who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. If we're fully aware of grace, it means two things. I know who I am. I know how rotten and despicable I am. I know the thoughts that, that, that flash through my mind in a, in a heartbeat that I would never tell you. Because you would look at me differently. I know that. I know who I am. But I also know who Christ is and I know what He's done. And because of that, grace is worth celebrating. It softens the heart. It draws me to Christ because He has not considered my past transgressions so great that I'm beyond the point of love, that I'm beyond the point of acceptance. Maybe that's a good point for us to rest on this morning, but it goes beyond that. A disciple of Christ is not only one who has received, but dispenses. You know, I, I wish I had all the money in the world for you guys this morning. You know why? Because you would have left church this morning with a Pez dispenser in your hand. That sounds kind of silly. Maybe you don't even know what a Pez dispenser is. You can ask your neighbor. But it's this little candy thing that I, I grew up on. Probably not great candy, but I love that. Convenience. I mean, just in your pocket, pull it out, boom, there to go. Perfect picture of how, how we're to be with grace. We have it, and when someone needs it, there it is. You know, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and there were a couple of um, attorneys who had um, commercials on local television. And uh, I, don't, I meant to look them up and make sure that I got the names right. But one of them was a guy named Brian Loncar. Um, and he was known as the strong arm. That was his thing on TV. Okay, and there's another guy named Jim Adler, and his handle, his how you how he wanted you to know him was he was the Texas Hammer, and he would say it like that every time. He really would. I mean, I'm sorry, did I scare somebody? I didn't mean to. Um, but he would do that, and he would he would he would get this real angry tone in his voice, and just try to convey to you through the TV that if you hired him as as a lawyer, that he was going to do everything in his power to get you what you deserved. If you've been in, a, in an accident or a, if you've been wronged, he said, I'm going to make it right for you. And it, it, was, it was just this determined bulldog look and he's going to be your attorney if you need it. You know, sometimes when we see things that are obviously wrong, there's a heat that kind of comes up inside us. Those of us who have, know what we have been, know what Christ has done for us. Sometimes we see an obvious wrong. We see a, a blatant sinner. And there's this heat that comes up. And, and, and the heat makes you want to go and say, Hey, stop it. You should know better by now. Yet I would say to us this morning, that doesn't soften a heart. 
that's not going to incline someone to open their ear to hear about the Jesus that you say you serve. Grace softens hard hearts. Softens the heart. Grace is greater. You know why? Because an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Grace is greater because it highlights salvation through faith in Christ as opposed to salvation through being good, earning it. We can't be good enough. Grace is greater because Jesus showed it to be true and effective and from it He receives all the glory. Grace is greater because it turns stone hearts into shapeable or moldable clay. Grace begets grace. Did you know that this morning? I would challenge you as we, as we wrap up here uh, just in a few minutes to think about our job as a disciple two ways, okay? And these kind of work together. Your job, your, your privilege, I, I don't like the, the language of job. It implies that we have to do it. But, but truly, that it, I guess ultimately that's where it lies. But, but the privilege that we get to be with Christ is a reservoir for grace. Think of a, a, an elevated uh, water tower or something like that. It, it holds grace. And, and, and we've received it and the tank is full, okay? And at any given moment, we could encounter someone who needs us to walk over to the valve that controls the dispensing of that grace. And that we're going to encounter these people that need us to go open that valve up and let that grace run out all over a messy, sticky, dirty nasty, probably even repulsive situation. Think of it that way. As the grace flows out, the reservoir is refilled. Maybe it would help you to think about grace this way. Sometimes we think uh, as, uh, as, as believers in Christ that we're going to do things like charge hell with a water pistol. I've heard people say that, and it's kind of a funny thing to laugh at. And what they're trying to say is, I'm so fired up for Christ right now that there's nothing that Satan could do that would distract me. I'm okay with that. Sometimes we tend to think of our life as a dam that prevents the prevailing culture, prevailing tide from, from going any further toward hell. I would challenge you. Think of it differently. Instead of grace being a dam that stops culture from getting any worse, think of it as a ship, okay? Grace is not a dam that prevents a tide from flowing, but a ship that's navigating toward a destination no matter what the tide does. So the tide keeps going, and in grace, we keep uh, marching on toward the destination of being Christ-like, and along the way, we get to rub shoulders with other people who are also ships of grace that are heading against where the tide is trying to take them. This is an accurate picture of grace. Grace is a path on which we love, or excuse me, on which the love and the life of Jesus Christ is made evident. Listen to me, church. There will be some that will misunderstand grace. There will be others that flat out abuse it. It doesn't matter. If you're a disciple of Christ, the responsibility is still ours to reciprocate it. 
Accepting, in fact, the hometown challenge to live missionally is accepting the challenge to regularly dispense grace with intent, just like Jesus did. Can we do that? I hope so. I hope so. Let's pray together this morning.